Hey, it's Jordan. I am delighted to be joined by uh, the Globetrotter himself, Ben Norton from the Gray Zone, uh, currently reporting in Venezuela, but you've been in quite a bit of Latin American countries uh, the last few months, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, you're with the Gray Zone, which is doing great work. Uh, you can find it at, correct me if I'm wrong, G-R-A-Y-Z-O-N-E.com. Uh, GrayZone.com. The gray zone. Thanks for correcting me. Um, I want to start. There's so much to talk about, but I haven't been able to cover this. Uh, and I honestly, if you want to talk about um, the pretty much confirmation of fascism, there's reports that the U.S. military now is pushing to create an algorithm to snuff out, quote unquote, fake news. Um, now... I'll just leave it at that's exactly who I want determining what's fake news and what's not. We already have Google, we already have Google suppressing outlets like yours, mine, deranking uh, independent alternative anti-war news. Obviously, YouTube is part of that. Facebook and now uh, the military. Uh, I'm sure you know a lot more about this than I. Your thoughts? Well, they're just cutting out the middleman, right? The funny thing is that you know we talk a lot about the military-industrial complex, but under Trump. The military-industrial complex just directly rules us. There are no, there's no longer a, the pretense of having a middleman. So now we're just going to have the military monitor social media for so-called fake news. Are they going to censor fake news from the New York Times, like WMDs, like all of these lies, like the, the most recent lies against Iran, that Iran is supposedly attacking all these ships off of its own coast? and. Iran attacked a Japanese oil tanker when the when the prime minister of Japan was visiting Iran for the first time in 40 years. We're supposed to believe this blatant fake news. But the military is, of course, not going to censor the actual fake news coming from CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. Instead, they're going to use this as a, a pretense, of course, to, an excuse to justify censoring alternative media and facts they don't like. We have a perfect example of this recently of how ridiculous this so-called fact-checking industry is, the fake news obsession. The most recent example I can think of is Tulsi Gabbard in the, pres in the Democratic presidential debate correctly stated that Donald Trump has been on the side of Al-Qaeda, supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria, which is true. The largest branch of Al-Qaeda since 9-11, the largest branch in 20 years of the so-called this fake war on terror is located in Idlib, Syria, and the U.S. is protecting Idlib, preventing the Syrian government and Iran and Russia from retaking it for a variety of reasons, I and mean, we can talk about that. But the point is that that was a factual statement. We also have mainstream media reports admitting that the U.S. government has been supporting al-Qaeda, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, U.S. allies, have been supporting al-Qaeda in Yemen against the Houthi movement in Yemen. That's, these are mainstream media outlets admitting it, and Tulsi Gabbard correctly stated that, but all of these fake fact-checker websites said that Tulsi Gabbard was lying. They said that that's not true. So if they say that already, what do you think the military is going to say? Of course the military is going to say it's fake news, and they're going to censor it. The last thing I'll say here is that as scary as it is, actually, this is already kind of happening indirectly. So I said cutting out the middleman. So as an example... Google has been a military contractor since the beginning of its founding, right? Since its earliest days. And there's a really good journalist you should interview sometime, Yasha Levine, mm. who's also really active on Twitter. And he's got an amazing book called Surveillance Valley, 
the secret military history of the internet. And he talks about how all these big tech companies, the reason they became these big monopolies is not because they were, they were led by geniuses. No, it's they became these big tech monopolies because they had like a symbiotic relationship with the military industrial complex and the government. And they got all these, these beefy contracts and were able to push out all the competition. So it's actually not surprising that they would go along with this. Facebook has already been working with groups like the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is a neoliberal pro-war think tank that is funded by the US government and funded by NATO and funded by that beloved democracy, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and the Atlantic Council has been working with Facebook to screen so-called fake news, to censor out fake news from its algorithm. So this is just cutting out the middleman and, and just making what's already happening even worse. Well, what I find interesting is they're trying to, I think, their PR spin is spin it that they're really looking for like legitimate fake things. Like, you know, there's with technology, you're starting to see doctored video where, you know, they, they insert words into politicians' mouths that weren't actually said. Uh, I saw one that really looked like uh, former President Obama uh, months ago saying something, um, you know, bad, uh, but it wasn't him like that. They're, they're trying to make it seem like that's the only thing they're targeting, um, you know, specifically doctored video, doctored um, speech from leaders, things like that. But where that is a very slippery slope that we know the military. I mean, the CIA literally used to have moles inside the New York Times newsroom. If you've studied history, I mean, we know that. Well, <laughs> thank you for correcting me. So my point is, it's a very slippery slope. Uh, who gets to decide what's fake news and what's not? I support sniffing out altered video, things like that. But I mean, that is few and far between. Uh, if you actually had legitimate news reporting on, let's say, you know, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Trump trying to cheerlead us into the uh, war with Iran or Syria or whomever, isn't it a conflict of interest that the military who works for Donald Trump and, and those figures is then going to be determining if the gray zones reporting or whomever's reporting that exposes this is fake? No, of course, you hit the nail on the head. This is terrifying, and it's a ridiculous conflict of interest. I mean, you know, there's that, there's that saying, who's going to watch the Watchmen? Well, apparently it's going to be the people who directly have a vested interest in preventing the, peop the journalists who are exposing them from actually getting their word out to the rest of the world. I mean, it's ridiculous and it's terrifying. A quick note really quickly, this is kind of aside from the point, but the CIA point. So the legendary journalist, Washington Post, former Washington Post reporter Bernstein, who left the Washington Post after exposing the one of the most important scandals in U.S. modern history, Watergate. You know, this was a very prominent uh, award-winning journalist. He left the Washington Post kind of in protest of its, of its propaganda, and then he published this huge expose in the, in the Rolling Stone looking at uh, hundreds of mainstream media outlets that were working hand in glove with the CIA and FBI. And also, it's not illegal. The government has repeatedly re reiterated that it's not illegal for intelligence agencies to have moles and people working in mainstream media outlets. So that, that, that policy is definitely continuing. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question again, the thing about this censorship that's terrifying is that, you know, people, for many years have claimed, oh, the internet is a form of liberation and it's going to allow freedom of all expression and information. But actually, what we're seeing now 
is that information is being more and more tightly controlled even than it was before. You know, of course the internet has provided an opportunity for people like you to have your program um, and status quo and your website and for us, you know, to do the same kind of thing. But more and more they, they keep restricting the audience, restricting the algorithms. You know, before the internet existed, I'm not going to in any way romanticize it, but you had a vibrant, independent, alternative media. You had hundreds of magazines, underground newspapers, you know, different zines and other outlets. And those have all pretty much gone away. And yeah, we still have alternative media, but actually I think if you look at it now compared to before the internet, the alternative media is much smaller now. Mm -hmm. So this is they're, what they're doing is even further restricting it. And we have this myth that the U.S. is supposedly so free. We have the freest press in the world. Even groups like Reporters Without Borders, which are Western-funded, you know, very biased groups, even they acknowledge that according to their Press Freedom Index, the U.S. is nowhere near the top. It's in like the 50th or 60th place, according to their own metrics, their mm -hmm. biased metrics for Press Freedom. So this is another attack on press freedom, and we as journalists, as independent journalists, but also all journalists, need to speak out against this because all it's going to do is prevent us from being able to challenge what CNN and Fox News are saying. And that's a good segue because the gray zone, I think it was Aaron Maté, did a great uh, piece basically exposing that CNN, who had uh, you know a breaking story uh, weeks ago about Julian Assange when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, that, you know, Assange was essentially like the control center and was having people come and go uh, basically to, you know, work with Russia as far as the 2016 election. Uh, it was, I mean, Aaron and the Gray Zone essentially debunked it. Assange continues uh, to remain in a, a Belfast jail. Uh, his mother tweeted out that he's lost, I think, 15 pounds. Obviously, there's a lot of reports of his declining mental, physical health. And I think the, de the court hearing is in February of next year uh, for, honestly, likely extradition to the U.S. Uh, can you kind of uh, talk about uh, the continued propaganda against Assange that you guys have uh, exposed? Yeah, there's so many lies about Julian Assange. It's part of the same war on alternative media we were talking about. You know, this past week, there this is early September, right? So this past week, there was a major rally in London, and Roger Waters, the legendary singer from Pink Floyd, sang Wish You Were Here, one of his most famous songs, in support of Julian Assange outside the British Home Office. Like you mentioned, Assange is a political prisoner, and multiple prominent people around the world, including the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, have said that he is being tortured and should be released. Also. And we need to always stress, because mainstream media never mentions this, uh, for years now, the UN Special Committee, like the experts on arbitrary detention, have for years said that Julian Assange is being arbitrarily detained, even when he was in the embassy, and that he mu must be released and is due compensation for all of the harm done to him. This is a legally binding decision by a major UN body. So it's against international law. Of course, Britain and the U.S. don't care at all about violating international law, as we've seen. So it's just so criminal what's been going on. They're torturing this journalist who has never committed a crime. All he has done is published 
information that is factual and in the public interest at WikiLeaks. And the Obama administration, not that it was some great beacon of freedom because the Obama administration went after Chelsea Manning and other whistleblowers, but even the, even the Obama administration was afraid of trying to extradite Assange because it knew that if it charged Assange with crimes, that it would also open the door for charging any journalist, including the New York Times and the Washington Post's own stenographers, of supposed crimes for doing the act of journalism. So now the Trump administration is opening the door, essentially, for a war on all journalists, and the neoliberal pundits are clapping like seals. They're totally fine with it. You know, they, they always talk about when Trump criticizes Acosta and some of these, these stupid pundits at CNN, like, oh my God, this is a Nazi-style attack on the freedom of the press. And it's like, no, you know, Trump's an idiot, but so are these people. And when he's criticizing them, they often deserve it. But now he's actually, in the most severe way possible, threatening the freedom of the press. And, and they're clapping. They're going along with it. They're saying that Assange is not a journalist, blah, blah, blah. And you mentioned at the Gray Zone, he published a video interview and also a very long print piece with a former Ecuadorian diplomat. Uh, his name is Fidel Narayas. And he lived, not sorry, he didn't live. He worked in the Ecuadorian embassy in London when Julian Assange was living there. And Narvaez, this former Ecuadorian diplomat, is a close friend of Assange. They worked together for many years. He knows him very well. He was working five days a week, full time, in the embassy. He saw everything that happened. And at the gray zone, he, he wrote an article for us. And it, he, he found 40 lies and distortions and half-truths in the CNN report on Assange, this, this supposed bombshell report. And Narvaez just kind of methodologically walks through all of the lies. Lies like Assange smeared his poop on the walls of the embassy, a complete fabrication. Lies like Assange was getting in fist fights with the diplomats, a complete lie. And there's, of course, smaller lies, like white lies, but it's all part of this propaganda that is being fed by intelligence agencies, not just the U.S., but the Ecuadorian intelligence agencies, which are now against Assange and against the former leftist president. And they, the new president is a neoliberal who's allowing the reopening of a U.S. military base on an Ecuadorian island. So all of, all of these factors are coming together, and Julian Assange is becoming the scapegoat that neoliberals and the Republicans under Trump are all throwing all of their smears and their stones at and blaming him for everything. And in the meantime, like again, you need to stress this point, this a potential extradition to U the US and charging Assange for the crime of doing journalism is the biggest attack on press freedoms in in this century, if not further. Uh, what I, I don't wanna spend I don't want to give that much time to The View, but I will point out, you know, The View the other day, it's just mind-numbing and ignorant. Uh, we're basically tag-teaming Pam, uh, Pamela Anderson, who, frankly, is more intelligent than a lot of the pundits that go on CNN, um, and basically calling him a cyber terrorist and these things. But I don't recall Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar, all these people uh, back in 2010 when uh, WikiLeaks was releasing things that really looked made the Bush administration look terrible. Uh, even during the Bush administration, I don't recall them calling him a cyber terrorist, um, you know, uh, puppet of Russia, whatever, everybody, including Rachel Maddow and MSNBC. The New York Times worked with WikiLeaks on some things. 
loved WikiLeaks, loved Assange. How how quickly it turns when they release things that are not so flattering on the neoliberal order. Absolutely. And that interview, you know, Pamela Anderson knows Assange very, very well. They're close. And that interview says a lot about who not only she is, but Assange is. You know, Pamela Anderson's awesome. She's on her Twitter account. She's like posting all of these like haikus and, and poems criticizing Western capitalism and the military industrial complex. And but in the interview, she points out, she says, look, Assange wanted to stop all of these wars. He wanted to stop the military industrial complex. That's why they turned against him. As you mentioned, the WikiLeaks used to work with mainstream media outlets in the Bush years, but it wasn't just because it was Bush and then Obama came in. It was actually more than just that. Assange himself, he started out as a kind of libertarian, right-leaning in some ways, but he kind of moved more to the left. And he's, you know, he's got some weird politics in some ways, but he's very deeply anti-war. His main mission is stopping all of these wars, these regime change wars, you know, kind of like someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who they kind of have mixed politics, but they're deeply committed to opposing war. And, and Pamela Anderson was stressing that, and she was like, look, how many people have, have, has WikiLeaks killed? Zero. Meanwhile, what about all these wars, the war in Iraq, et cetera? They've killed millions of people, and Assange is trying to stop that. And of course, all these people on The View, they don't care. John McCain, one of the most cartoonish war hawks imaginable, his daughter, who has no qualifications, people say it's sexist to point this out. What qualifications does Meghan McCain have other than the fact that her last name is McCain? None. None. But of course, she's on this show, and, you know, all it is is it's just neoliberal propaganda mixed with some conservatives, but most of it's just neoliberal propaganda. And it's, again, it just shows how tightly controlled all of these narratives are. And when someone like Assange or Pamela Anderson, someone who challenges the mainstream, or Susan Sarandon challenges the kind of bipartisan consensus, they're treated as though they're crazy and they're just smeared constantly and blamed for all of the problems caused by the neoliberals. And thank you for getting me demonetized. As soon as you mentioned Susan Sarandon, that's it. Google's, oh, Google's done with you. No, I'm just kidding. Well, probably, but I don't care. So um, uh, I want to move on. It was already demonetized in the first three minutes. Of <laughs> yes, this. that's true. Uh, I want to move on to what's going on in Hong Kong. Uh, honestly, the, to the to the degree that it's been covered in corporate media, uh, it seems to be to be getting it wrong as per usual. Uh, you would know the history more than I, but you know, for a long time, Hong Kong is technically, well, it was uh, part of uh, you know under British control, and then there was in 1997, it was moved back to China, but still as separate with its own freedoms, freedom of speech, all that. And China has been encroaching. This is this is what we're told. Uh, what is the fact first fiction? Because I know I have a friend that's a journalist there. He is, you know, wearing gas masks uh, out in the streets. There's a lot of uh, protests going on, but I, uh, something I don't know a, a ton about, but I, I suspect we're not getting the truth from CNN. Of course not. I mean, it's actually really incredible seeing the response of mainstream media pundits who are openly fawning over the years of British colonialism. As you mentioned, Hong Kong was a British colony stolen from China in the Opium Wars, turned into a permanent British colony, and then in the years of Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, the Chinese Premier Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher came to an agreement to return Hong Kong back to China, which is, it's been part of China for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, 
And of course, part of that agreement was what they call two systems, one country, two systems, right? So Hong Kong has a very, very capitalist economy with you know large corporations and oligarchs basically controlling all the politics in the country. And you know China has a mixed economy. They had a lot of market reforms and privatization, but it still has very strong state control over large parts of the economy in China. So the economies are very different. And Hong Kong for many years was the kind of, it was the center of Western corporations doing business because China was under a blockade for a long time after the communist revolution in 1949. And, and until the 19, until like really the late 1970s and especially the 1980s with the rise of Deng Xiaoping, when China began some of these market reforms, there, there wasn't much Western corporate business going on inside China. So Hong Kong was the hub for that. And it also used to be a huge, huge part of China's GDP. And over the years, as China has skyrocketed in growth, Hong Kong has actually become less important in the overall Chinese economy, but it still is important. And really what's going on right now is, look, unfortunately, all of the people protesting in Hong Kong, many of them are caught in the middle of a new Cold War. And we really need to talk about this because mainstream corporate media outlets and even some ostensible progressives like Elizabeth Warren and others are fueling this new Cold War and saying China is a big threat to us. China is threatening our economy and our national security and all of this. And it's actually, it's kind of like the slightly more progressive version of Russiagate. Mm. So now they're blaming China for so many things. Uh, and actually it's pretty terrifying. There have been more and more reports that the FBI, for instance, is interrogating Chinese cancer scientists, including ethnic Chinese who were US citizens and doing cancer research in collaboration with Chinese universities. There was a big report in Bloomberg about how the FBI is going to their houses and and asking them if they're spies and interrogating them and stopping them at the airport. There was also another report in the past few weeks of nine students at the University of Arizona who were Chinese and who were undergrads who were deported by CBP. They were not allowed to enter the country and they didn't tell the university why. They refused to tell the university. So there's more and more anti-Chinese xenophobia growing and more and more Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, of course, began this campaign of blaming China for everything. They're stealing our jobs and our economy and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. What's not mentioned, of course, is that it's actually Western corporations that are the ones outsourcing. And yeah, I mean, China wants these job opportunities, but it's not like China's in some nefarious plot to just steal middle America's jobs. I mean, it's that problem is capitalism. The problem is not China. They couldn't do it. They couldn't they couldn't do it if the corporations weren't writing after TPP and the rest of them. Exactly. Well, that's the point is that that, that neoliberals and you know these these capitalists always want to blame countries as the boogeyman instead of blaming the system. The system is this neoliberal capitalist system that allows corporations to just exploit labor across the world with no regulation, with no limitations. And so what's going on in Hong Kong right now is something very similar. One of the main people who is funding and really pushing the protest is a right-wing media oligarch called Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai has been referred to as the Rupert Murdoch of Asia. And he owns one of the most important media outlets, kind of the Fox News of Hong Kong. It's called Apple Daily. And they're doing nonstop 
anti-Chinese propaganda, pro-Hong Kong uh, independence propaganda. And he recently came to the U.S. to D.C. and he met with John Bolton and Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, all of these neoconservatives who are really pushing the anti-China agenda. And, you know, if you just look at the mainstream corporate media propaganda, I mentioned mainstream pundits like Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times tweeted and wrote this thing on Facebook about how life was so much better under British colonialism than it is now under China. And the, one of the main editors of the, the opinion editor for Asia of the Wall Street Journal is this journalist who wrote an article, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal calling for the restoration of British colonialism in Hong Kong, saying that life was so much better when it was a British colony and there was a free market and blah, blah, blah. And also this, this, this Wall Street Journal editor on Twitter, his profile photo is a locust. And in Hong Kong, there's also a lot of anti-Chinese nativism. And, they, and Apple Daily, this right-wing media outlet owned by the oligarch Jimmy Lai, has published ads repeatedly portraying mainland Chinese as locusts who are coming to Hong Kong and and because Hong Kong was a rich hub for so long and people's higher their 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 living standards were much higher than the mainland mainland Chinese living standards that that's kind of equalized more but for many years there are mainland Chinese who were immigrating to Hong Kong for work and things like that and they speak you know different dialects of Chinese and they have different customs in some ways culturally and for many years, you know, the kind of right-wing Hong Kong elite has treated the mainland Chinese as if they're just barbaric and all uneducated poor people who speak unsophisticated Chinese. And that really, that anti-Chinese nativism, you know, some people in the West portray it as, oh, it's, it's pro-democracy and progressive, but actually it's very right-wing, which is why we're seeing all of these alt-right figures in the U.S., go to Hong Kong because a lot of these Hong Kong protest protesters are waving US flags and singing the US national anthem They're, they've also been waving British colonial flags and there was a massive rally where they called for the restoration of British colonialism and they said we all want to be British again and again these are a lot of young people who have never they didn't even know what British colonialism was like and actually when there were protests there was a massive uprising in the 1960s against British colonialism the British responded with massive violence. They massacred dozens and dozens of people. They injured hundreds of people. They threw thousands of leftists in prison. And meanwhile, these protesters now are actually vandalizing symbols of the left. They've, they vandalized the largest labor union's office, which led to the leftist uprising against British colonialism. They've also been destroying the metro stations to prevent working class people from going to their jobs because they're trying to, to, to stop society from functioning mm -hmm. in the same way they use these tactics in Venezuela and Nicaragua. So what's sad is that there are a lot of young people protesting against things like rising housing prices because the oligarchs in Hong Kong, most of the oligarchs like in New York are from real estate and they have so much money because real estate in Hong Kong is one of the most expensive you know real estate industries in the world so living expenses are rising and there aren't many good jobs so a lot of young people are protesting but but their protests like the protests in Ukraine which led to the the overthrow of the Ukrainian government 
the coup in 2014, and the implementation of a far-right neoliberal government. Similar to that, a lot of these protests are being exploited by the West and by corporations and by the oligarchs and by corporate media to push for this kind of like right-wing regime change, color revolution. And, and once again, you should always be suspicious when not only CNN and Fox News, but also Breitbart and InfoWars mm. are all on the same page. InfoWars has sent multiple reporters to Hong Kong, and Breitbart is constantly doing pro-Hong Kong protest stuff. These, these alt-right protesters in Hong Kong are all using Pepe the Frog. You'll see Pepe the Frog everywhere, all over their stuff. And meanwhile, these Western journalists say, Pepe the Frog means something different. What? Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't. These people have access to internet. They're not stupid. And you know who, who understands what's going on? These people like Patriot Pet Prayer, these far-right, alt-right groups who have been going to Hong Kong and live-streaming themselves with the protesters waving the American flag. They know what's going on, and they're not, like, they're not pretending it's some great progressive uprising. But, of course... MSNBC is. Right. And as far as, uh, you know, even Bernie uh, and progressives have talked about Chinese stealing intellectual property, those kinds of things. Uh, he's talked about, if he, if he were elected, addressing that. Uh, how much of that is legitimate and how much of that is essentially, you know, the neoliberal order focusing on, you know, this corner uh, while they're trying to, uh, it's really a mask for other things. Well, there's obviously a lot to criticize about China. No one's saying yeah. that it's some great model for society but there's there's so many lies that just like dispelling the lies and saying let's just actually stay in reality you could call a chinese apologist the best person i would recommend for this issue who just knows it inside out is richard wolf mm. richard wolf has done so many good interviews for people who don't know he is a major leftist economist who has done a lot of really good work at this website democracy at work he's got his own economic report and he just dispels a lot of these myths, like the intellectual property point. First of all, I don't. I think intellectual property, for the most part, is pretty stupid. So, as an example, why should private companies that make a cancer for, uh, I mean, a, a cure for cancer or a cure for other diseases, why should they not? Why should they have the only right to to create this cure that helps save lives? That's ridiculous. This should be common property. And most of the intellectual property stuff that these Chinese companies are using and the Chinese government is using are for scientific patents and things like that. So I, I believe in a world where actually these things are common property, where if a scientist or an engineer discovers some kind of cure or new technology, shouldn't we encourage that? But also, even aside from that, Richard Wolf points out that, look, the, the agreement made between China, these Chinese government, the Chinese government and these Chinese companies, many of which are linked to the Chinese government and the Western corporations, the, the agreement made between them was, we will provide you cheap labor here in China, and in return, you will, you know, create all these manufacturing jobs for us, but also we will have access to all of these things that we're producing. Because what's really wild to me is that they're saying China is stealing our intellectual property, but it's like, whoa, 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 wait. China is the one producing your technology. What? What are you talking about? China's stealing the intellectual property of the machines it's making in its own country and exporting to your country? Like, China's stealing the intellectual property of the phones that its own workers are making and then selling to New York? What? 
Mm-hmm. So the whole narrative is just framed in a really weird way. And no, I mean, I'm, certainly I'm not saying that China is like, again, perfect and that, and that I support many of China's policies. I absolutely don't, especially, you know, China does have some really bad labor standards in some of these companies, in some of these factories for Western companies. And, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that China is still like, it's, it's got a mixed economy very much and it has state ownership over lots of the economy, but it's not, it's not communist like it used to be. And all these Republicans say, oh, it's communist because it's, the Communist Party is still in charge and it's a weird contradiction. But, but you have to be able to dispel what's actually happening from the ridiculous anti-Chinese lies. And more and more, unfortunately, there's going to be a more and more lies and more and more of this anti-China hysteria like we've seen with Russia. And I will say, last comment is that Jimmy Lai, the Rupert Murdoch of Asia, this right-wing oligarch in Hong Kong who's working with the Trump administration and pushing all the protests against China, Jimmy Lai, in an interview with CNN, which admitted that Jimmy Lai is working with the Trump administration, in the CNN puff piece, he said, we are in a cold war with China. And he said, we in Hong Kong are on the side of the US against China. So that says everything. You have one of the main right-wing oligarchs openly saying this is a cold war and it's the U.S. against China. It's mm. not just my opinion. They're openly saying it at this point. I kind of want to pivot uh, to Afghanistan and the 2020 election because, honestly, other than Tulsi, uh, also Bernie, I mean, I always thought this, but it's becoming more glaring. I, I don't think you could believe anything these, these presidential candidates uh, say on foreign policy, particularly Trump and now Warren. I mean, um, my former colleague, uh, hold on, there's a poor connection. So I want to segue to uh, Afghanistan, but also the presidential election. So uh, Trump who, you know, ran as a isolationist and let's get out of all these wars. Obviously, no such thing uh, is talking now that he was going to negotiate with the Taliban, but now he's not going to. And he doesn't seem in a rush to end this war, which he said he was going to, much like his predecessor, Barack Obama. Uh, my former colleague uh, at TYT, Emma Viglund, asked Elizabeth Warren yesterday, um, how do you square, you know, your domestic policy, uh, <coughs> which is progressive, to voting for a massive defense budget? You uh, have focused a lot on progressive domestic policy. You also voted for a military budget increase in 2017. How does that square with your progressive politics when we're talking about foreign policy? If the question is, do I think we should cut the military budget, the answer is yes. And I'm now on the Senate Armed Services Committee. I've had this fight over and over. But there's another part to it, too. We need to stop the control over our defense budget that's exercised by the giant defense industry. Um, As you know, we now have a Secretary of Defense who spent seven years as head lobbyist for Raytheon. Um, I asked for some simple conflict of interest rules that he would abide by. For example, not to make decisions that involve Raytheon and Raytheon's bottom line. And he refused. Um, The Republicans confirmed him anyway. But this is what corruption is all about. Putting lobbyists in charge of our government agencies, a lobbyist, former lobbyist in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. This is the heart of corruption. And the moment has come 
to call it out and to fight back. Warren basically answered, uh, I want to cut the defense budget, but then didn't answer why she voted for a massive defense budget. So as far as I can tell, I mean, we know what the media has done to Tulsi uh, as much as I respect her. Uh, I don't think she's going to be president. Um, and Bernie, we know what they're doing to Bernie. He's of the credible candidates, the most um, likely to actually follow through on some of these uh, military drawdowns. But what are your thoughts on, I mean, Warren's saying, I want to cut the defense budget, but there's zero evidence of that. Uh, we know about Biden, Harris, and we have a President Trump that if reelected, I don't see him doing anything on Afghanistan and unchained uh, as far as not having to worry about re-election, who the hell knows uh, what new conflicts he could create? Well, two things, um, I'll answer in two parts. First, Afghanistan, then Warren, because, you know, it's obvious that Warren is becoming the, the consensus candidate for the corporate media and, you know, the establishment, the ruling class, but we'll get to her in a second. So for Afghanistan, you know, what's interesting about this is that Whenever Afghanistan is discussed, like many of these issues, we always talk about it with the presupposition that this war is supposedly being fought for good reasons. But all right, let's think about this now. The war in Afghanistan this year is old enough to be drafted to go fight in the war in Afghanistan. 18 years. Meanwhile, the ostensible supposed goal for the war, defeating the Taliban, according to any metric, has completely failed. The Taliban is just as powerful now as it has been in the past. The Taliban controls half the country. Now, the Taliban's awful. They're extremely awful. And the U.S. would know because the U.S. supported the Taliban. The U.S. helped give birth to the Taliban in the 1980s by waging a jihadi war against the Soviet Union. The, US, the CIA spent billions of dollars supporting Salafi jihadists who later became al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Also, what's really crazy, you can find, uh, I'll, I'll share with you, you can find a press briefing of the State Department, the U.S. State Department, in the 1990s when the Taliban was solidifying control over Afghanistan after a bloody civil war, and the U.S. openly, publicly welcomed in the Taliban, taking over control of Afghanistan and, and providing so-called stability. So there's a history of the U.S. supporting the Taliban, and, and the fact that the U.S. is kind of fighting it now, we shouldn't forget that history. But let's talk about the current situation. So the Taliban is as strong as it has been really ever, controls half the country, it's been 18 years, thousands and thousands of people have died, mostly Afghans, but also Americans. And here we are where a, a recent U.N. report found that the U.S. has killed more civilians than the Taliban has in this war. So this is a situation we're in, and most regional powers in Asia, and Afghanistan is in Asia. It might be a reminder to Americans, Afghanistan is not in the Americas, it's in Asia. And the U.S. is still fighting this war. Why? Well, there's two main reasons which we're not allowed to talk about. One, Trump himself admitted, is Afghanistan has enormous, an estimated $3 trillion of mineral wealth, especially certain rare earth minerals that we need to build technology. And more and more in the future, as renewable energy becomes a necessity to survive on this planet, oil is going to become less important, but rare earth minerals and certain minerals we need to create technology are going to become more important. Places like Afghanistan, 
are full, chock full of these minerals. And two years ago, Trump actually admitted this, and the New York Times did a story about Trump found a reason to wage war in Afghanistan. It's, it's huge mineral reserves. So that's a big element. And then something that gets no mainstream media coverage is also Afghanistan produces almost all, more than 90% of the world's heroin. Mm. And there has been a huge rise in heroin use, not just in the US, but in many countries around the world. Russia, many big countries have a huge heroin problem. And it's what's going on in Afghanistan is similar to what happened in the war in Vietnam, but also the wars in Central America, where the CIA and intelligence agencies are using drug money as a slush fund to, su to support their, their extra-legal, so-called extra-legal projects that are not approved by the U.S. government, uh, by the Congress, democratically. You know, the CIA does all these shadow wars and shadow campaigns and needs funding to do it. And in Central America, in Nicar its war in Nicaragua, we know Gary Webb, the journalist famously exposed, the CIA was using cocaine money to fund many of these things and then taking the cocaine and selling it in black neighborhoods in the U.S., helping to create a crack cocaine epidemic. And, and then in Vietnam, there was another huge scandal in the so-called Golden Triangle, where the CIA was selling heroin not only to people in Vietnam and Laos, but also to its own soldiers, to U.S. soldiers who had a huge, there was a huge problem with heroin addiction in the U.S. Army during the war in Vietnam and, and Laos and Cambodia. And the same thing is happening in Afghanistan, where the, this, the rates of of heroin production since the war began in 2001 have increased by like 10 times. They have skyrocketed. So we're, we never can talk about the massive mineral reserves and the heroin rat line that is a huge part of this war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan is not about democracy. None of these wars are about democracy. They're all about corporate profits and empire and making more money and controlling important strategic reasons so we can have corporations can trade and send, take their resources and send other resources. Also, of course, Afghanistan is very strategically located. There's a huge US military base, Bagram Air Base, right near Iran. So if the neocons like John Bolton really want to try to wage a war in Iran, they need Afghanistan to wage a war in Iran. So what's happening with Trump? Trump's an idiot, obviously. But I also think Trump, even though he's a complete far-right idiot, he has been trying to fulfill some of his promises to his base. And I actually do think that he wants to end the war in Afghanistan because he doesn't understand why it's being waged. And the thing is, he's so stupid and doesn't really get what's happening that the military intelligence types and the neocons like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, they're the ones who want the war to continue. So they're the ones who are telling him, oh, well, you can't do it. You got to withdraw the peace talks. It's what happened with North Korea. You know, Trump's an idiot, but he almost did actually, you know, pursue a very important peace breakthrough in North Korea. And who destroyed it? It was John Bolton, of course. Right. So I'm not letting Trump off of that. Trump is the one who appointed John Bolton. But Trump is so stupid and he's really outsourced his foreign policy to these neocons because he, he, can't, he doesn't know the difference between the Kurds and the Quds Force, as he famously demonstrated. As for Warren, you know, it's very clear, as I mentioned, Warren has become more and more the establishment consensus candidate for, you know, the bipartisan capitalists and oligarchs on not just Wall Street, but in Silicon Valley. And the thing about Warren is, you know, she has some progressive policies, but 
she always, unlike Bernie, she always makes it clear that she's still a capitalist. She still supports capitalism. She just wants regulation. Where Bernie, the thing about Bernie is, it's true that on paper, some of their policies are not that different. Although, Elizabeth Warren has flip-flopped on a lot of these policies. I mean, we know Bernie, for his entire career, has supported Medicare for All, whereas Warren is now kind of flip-flopping a bit. And, and the fact that, you know, this, these policies are not going to be implemented unless you have a full-on campaign with everyone on board 100%. And Warren's not even on board 100%, so you know that this thing is never going to happen. Wait, you, you, mean, you mean Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton having behind-the-scenes phone calls means she's not... It says actually... everything. <laughs> it says everything. This supposed progressive Elizabeth Warren is secretly collaborating with one of the most right-wing presidential candidates for the Democratic Party we've had in modern history. I mean, Biden, it's truly, Biden is truly impressive. He actually managed to be more right-wing than Hillary Clinton, which I didn't think was possible as a Democrat. But... You know, now we have Elizabeth Warren is conspiring with Clinton. And what do you think they're discussing? They're not discussing how they can help Bernie. They're discussing how they can push Bernie out of the race. And look, Warren is not some evil villain, but she's an opportunist. And she voted for Ronald Reagan twice in her 30s. She was not a little kid. So we need to understand who she is. And... Yeah, she's not as bad as Joe Biden, but she's not great. Well, and, well I also – I don't want to interrupt you, but I also – nobody points this out. Yeah, but on, on her uh, – uh, verbally and her policies, you know, a lot of good stuff in there, bank regulation, 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 uh, some progressive policies. But we should, but we don't really live and govern uh, under modern monetary theories. So – under the governing uh, philosophy that everything needs to be paid for and budgeted and this and that, how is any of her policies going to be enacted if we have a $738 billion military budget? Which, in fairness, uh, she wasn't there to vote for this time around. Neither was Bernie or the other candidates. There was just a debate the night before, so a lot of them just weren't present for that vote. She was present for the vote to vote for $715 billion, which she voted for. So I just, where is the money? And I'm not one of these people, how do you pay for it? But under the current philosophy, if she were to become president, I don't understand where the money is going to come from because none of her record uh, or any of her talk or speeches really show someone that's actually going to cut the military budget. Obama said he was going to cut the military budget. He only increased it. Obama said he was going to get us out of Afghanistan. We're still in Afghanistan. Uh almost four years after Obama. How does she enact any of these I have a plans with this kind of immoral military budget? Absolutely, it says everything. And the fact that she didn't even answer the TYT question says everything. She, she, the first thing she said is, I support reducing the military budget. And then she just, the, the next minute was her refusing to answer the question. Now, if you support reducing the military budget, why did you vote for increasing the military budget? I don't care what you say, I care what you do. This is the thing about Obama. For eight years, Obama supporters kept saying, well, did you listen to this speech he did, did you listen to what he said? I don't care what Obama said. Obama said a lot of things, and as you just mentioned, he did the exact opposite, right? So the thing is with Warren, all right, she said, and let's, let's, let's dissect her answer here. Her answer is very interesting. She said, I, reduce, I support reducing the military budget, which she, we know she voted against. Now, and then the rest of her answer was, the Trump administration is the definition of corrupt 
because it has all these military industrial complex operatives from large arms manufacturers who are now controlling policy and who are Secretary of Defense, etc. I agree with her 100%. That is blatant corruption and it should end. But just because you end corruption doesn't mean that you end the systemic problem. The systemic problem is not corruption. Corruption is a segment, it's a symptom of the problem. The actual problem is the military industrial complex. It's not that we have people from these companies directly governing us now. The problem is that even when they weren't directly governing us, we were still acting on their behalf. Like the military industrial complex it is a large monstrous entity that controls huge parts of Washington and it's a self-reinforcing apparatus. The only way you're going to stop that is not by removing the Raytheon executive from being Secretary of Defense and putting in some other military apparatchik. The only way you can do it is by reducing the military budget, cutting all these contracts with massive military corporations, ending these wars, pulling back the troops, closing foreign military bases. It needs to be a large process. Just removing someone who, because he was a Raytheon executive, doesn't solve the problem. But the thing is, Elizabeth Warren, this answer shows her entire worldview. She's a technocrat. Bernie, you know, uh, I'm not saying Bernie's perfect at all, but Bernie is a self-declared socialist. He gets it in the sense that he knows that if he wants to implement any of these policies, the only way he can do it is by mobilizing huge numbers of people in a progressive mass movement to pressure the government to pressure these institutions to force them to implement these policies. Elizabeth Warren, she thinks she can just regulate. She has the, the worldview of an accountant, of a technocrat. Her idea is she can just move some numbers around and do this thing here and move it here and move it there. It's not gonna work. I'm sorry, it's just not gonna work. And that is also why people like the Center for American Progress's leader, Neera Tanden, who is a total neoliberal, and Hillary Clinton, one of the most right-wing Democratic presidential candidates in history, that's why they are comfortable with Elizabeth Warren increasingly, and that's why they're doing everything they can to sabotage Bernie. And the last thing I'll say is, where was Elizabeth Warren during Bernie, Bernie Sanders' last presidential campaign? She didn't say a single word about Bernie, and as soon as he dropped out, immediately she endorsed Hillary Clinton. Says everything. Well, I also think, I mean, let's just call it what it is. At the end, uh, the bottom line of Bernie Sanders' campaign is not just policy. It's as president, number one, uh, under because to get any of these policies out, you have to reduce and ultimately eliminate the effect of money on politics. Elizabeth Warren is right, in theory, uh, that we need more regulation, but there already is regulatory bodies. There was a regulatory body that was supposed to be regulating the banks. There's regulatory bodies that are supposed to be regulating corp um, communications companies, the FCC, this and that. But if all of those bodies are all bought off as well, if all of those bodies are basically toothless, you could become president. You could have a plan for everything from rolling out of bed without pain if you have back pain. Uh, just saying that for me. But if money is still suffocating the system, which you're saying, I'm going to take money uh, from big corporations in the general election. You're saying, you're, I mean, the New York Times had a piece. She's having hot tea with all these leaders of the Democratic establishment all over the country. Okay, you're going to enforce more regulation, but how are you going to actually make it stick where it's enforceable? if money is still suffocating the system. Well, this is the key issue. All I'll say is that this obsession with talking about corruption, it's not a left-wing talking point. 
It's not a coincidence here in Latin America, the, all the anti-corruption talk has been dominated by the right wing, and they say the biggest problem is corruption. Of course, I am absolutely against corruption. No one supports corruption. But the thing is, corruption is not the main problem. Corrupt corruption is a symptom of the systemic problems. The problem in the U.S. is not that the Secretary of Defense used to work for a massive arms corporation. The problem is that the Secretary of Defense before that still was acting on behalf of large weapons corporations, even if he didn't directly work for them. All Trump has done is remove the illusion that things were somehow different. But he, because he's just made it blatant. He said he's going to drain the swamp and he puts more Goldman Sachs operatives than anyone before him. So it's, it's not that those people in that position are the issue. And then if you remove those people, things are better. Because those people were not there under Obama necessarily. I mean, some people were, but things weren't better. The problem is that you have to challenge the system itself. And Bernie, you know, for all his strengths and weaknesses, he understands that. So it's not even about Bernie as an individual. It's about the fact that we have to change the frame of reference from one of saying, Elizabeth Warren, we, we need to stop the corruption, and two to saying, we need to stop the neoliberal politics that controls our entire government that says that outsourcing and privatization and so-called free markets are all inherently good policies that we should always support no matter what the circumstances and also the idea that okay yeah it's true that it's corruption if someone from Raytheon is now governing us but also the literal definition of corruption is actually policy in the US according to Citizens United corporations are people corporations can directly fund politicians and bankroll their entire campaign in almost all of the world, that is the definition of corruption. But in the US, that's literally how politics functions. So instead of talking about these smaller examples of corruption, which are still bad, we should be talking about the fact that corruption is the system itself. Corruption is legal. And if we change, if we get rid of Citizens United and get money out of politics and, and have public have public funding of elections like much of the world and all of these policies that will do so much more to stop more corruption in the future than just removing a few apparatchiks and replacing them with someone else right my last question i kind of have this uh cartoonist image in my head of dick cheney somewhere on a ranch uh in wyoming you know feverishly calling uh the white house switchboard or he has a direct dial to like uh you know some of the neocons and trump's administration like put me in coach like I would have had this Venezuela thing done in, you know, a month. I mean, like, these people are incompetent. I know how to topple dictators for oil. Uh, you're in Venezuela. You've been doing some great reporting. They haven't got it done yet. Bolton, Pompeo. Uh, now there's talks that Pompeo and Bolton aren't even talking, not on speaking terms, uh, which is kind of funny in itself. Um, talk about what's going on on the ground there. Uh, also, uh, kind of you know, a little run-on question. There's also now mass propaganda. There's this Amazon show, uh, Jack shit, Jack something, that's the Jack whole... Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan, that the whole plot is like this evil terrorist uprising coming out of Venezuela. Coincidentally, Amazon, which the show is on Amazon Prime, uh, has a massive contract with the CIA. I think they're about to close. Massive contract with the Pentagon. No coincidence there. Uh, what What's the update on the U.S. coup attempt uh, as far as Venezuela? Well, I'll say thank you, Jordan, for covering this because almost no media outlets are covering what's going on. 
including ostensibly progressive alternative media. On August 5th, the U.S., Trump declared a full economic embargo of Venezuela. There was a complete blockade of this country. They're now discussing creating a military blockade with the Navy preventing ships from importing food into Venezuela. The U.S. also recently put sanctions on the subsidized food program here in Venezuela. So they're, they're all but saying it, that their policy is massive collective punishment of the entire civilian population of Venezuela. They're trying to use hunger as a weapon, trying to starve people. And if it weren't for the government, there would actually be a humanitarian crisis. There's not a humanitarian crisis here. You know, we did an interview in February and March when I was here in Venezuela previously, and that was during, that was like the peak of the, the U.S.-backed coup attempt, this right-wing coup attempt to overthrow the democratically elected socialist government and install a right-wing neoliberal government that would privatize the oil industry, that would let all the like, Western corporations that were kicked out by Hugo Chavez let them back in. And that completely failed, totally miserably failed. The U.S.-appointed coup leader, Juan Guaido, is extremely unpopular. People barely even talk about him anymore. Totally fizzled out. So what they've moved on to is a complete economic embargo, Cuba-style, preventing all uh, any company in the U.S. from doing business with Venezuela, but also, even worse, the U.S. is threatening secondary sanctions against any company in the world that does business with Venezuela. So that has forced companies in Turkey, in China, in India to stop doing business with Venezuela. So the U.S. is using its control over the global financial system to try to prevent anyone from doing business with Venezuela, which has made things hard. And there's, I mentioned there's no humanitarian crisis. That's ridiculous. But there definitely is an economic crisis. There's issues with inflation, the dollarization of the economy, because the U.S., by preventing Venezuela from getting access to credit, by preventing foreign banks from working with Venezuela, has really hurt the economy and has really weakened the currency here, the Bolivar. So actually what's happening is it's a sign of, of how imperialism functions. Imperialism is not just military, it's not just the use of the military, it's also economic. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, these institutions that force countries to privatize, to cut social spending, to privatize social security, that's also imperialism. The dollarization, forcing people to use dollars, that's all imperialism. And here in, in Venezuela, what's really wild is that you'll see people in the street using U.S. dollars, which is not the currency of this country. But because the currency, the actual currency, has been so weakened because of this economic warfare, it's forcing the people here to use dollars, which is also maintaining U.S. banks' control even more over the Venezuelan economy. So there's just so many ways that they attack Venezuela. But like you said, they can't overthrow the government because regardless of the many problems there are, the government is still extremely popular and the opposition is even less popular than it was a few years ago because they're now openly collaborating with Donald Trump and the, the right wing of the US government, openly collaborating with them to try to overthrow the elected government here. And people are like, what are you doing? Why are you working with Donald Trump and Marco Rubio? It just becomes so blatant that the rich elite in Venezuela have less and less and less support, and people are supporting more and more of the government. The last thing I'll say, though, is that people need to realize that Venezuela is, one, still very much a democracy, and 
they are still elections, and actually all of these right-wing coup leaders who are collaborating with Trump and calling for a military coup and actually attempting literal coup attempts, military coup attempts, they're still walking around free. They're still not in jail. They're still giving speeches in public to tiny rallies with 50 people. The government has not imprisoned them. It's actually a sign that it's actually more democratic here than in the U.S. The U.S. would have, have hanged these people for treason. And then the other point is that, look, Venezuela has a democratically elected socialist government, but the economy is still not socialist. This is not Cuba. It's a mixed economy. And thanks to the government, people have, for basically free, they have food, education, healthcare, internet, water, and there are issues with some of these services. Sometimes there's not water. That's not, that's not unique in Venezuela. In Latin America, that's a chronic issue. And climate change is making it worse, by the way. But so all of the basics for, for survival are provided by the government. But the economy is still largely controlled by private capitalists. And they are the ones who are raising prices artificially, hoarding goods. So there's a lot of problems. And the thing is, a lot of Venezuelans say, we support our government because we know our government is acting on our behalf, on the behalf of poor working class people, and the rich elites only want to act on, be act on behalf of the large oil corporations. But at the same time, the economic hardship has made life really difficult for a lot of Venezuelans. And they're not starving to death. They're not, they're not all eating from the garbage, like CNN says. The government provides food through the CLAP food program that 80% of Venezuelans receive. The government provides has provided almost three million apartments for free or close to free for poor and working families. So people have the basic necessities, but 10 years ago, they didn't just have the basic necessities. They had very comfortable lives when the price of oil was high, when there weren't US sanctions. Now life has become much more difficult and they're going through a period of, of hardship thanks to this disgusting US economic war an embargo that gets almost no mainstream media coverage. Uh, what would we do without Ben Norton? I'm pressed for time. I, I wanted to get into the Brexit. I wanted to get into Netanyahu, the election in Israel coming up, him banning two elected lawmakers. So we might have to do a weekly segment uh, in the future. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, thanks for the great reporting. You can check Ben, uh, Aaron, Max Blumenthal out at thegrayzone.com. Uh, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you, Jordan. I mean, you all are doing, I mean, not just you all, I mean, mostly just you. I mean, you have colleagues, but you're doing some of the most important work in alternative media, too. So let's keep working together, and I'll keep in touch. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again, man. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statuscoup.com, where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as 5 to $10 a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statuscoup.com slash join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you.